0: As you're doing so, take your Bible and open to Acts chapter 1. In our sermon series this morning on the book of Acts, I guess technically we began it last week, Pastor Kevin preached from Luke chapter 24 uh, as an intro to the book of Acts, but we will begin Acts chapter 1 today. We will read the whole chapter. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 1, I think it's appropriate that we acknowledge that everyone who has come to church this morning every one of us that are in the room are coming with with some kind of baggage We're coming with some kind of stress or anxiety uh, there are joys and there are heartaches that fill this room there uh, you know I don't know maybe you're worried about your job maybe you're worried about your marriage maybe you're worried about your kids or your grandkids uh, maybe you're worried about politics Whatever, whatever is filling your mind and troubling your heart this morning, we all have those things. We all have, we're all affected by sin. We're all sinners. We all live in a broken world. And so the details are going to be different for every one of us. But there's not a single person uh, in the room this morning who doesn't have the scars of sin and suffering uh, that are filling our bodies and our souls. And so we, we acknowledge all that, because that's why what we're about to do together, read God's word and then exposit God's word together as a church, that's part of why this is the most important thing you're going to do this week. And some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's a little presumptuous for the preacher of the morning to stand up and say, Listen to me for the next little bit because nothing you're going to do is more important than this. But when you understand what the Bible is, the word of the one true and living God, and when you understand the condition of your own soul and the condition of the world, you will understand that there's nothing you need more every single week than to gather with the church and to hear God's word preached. Lord, may we be attentive to your word. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room Where they were staying, Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of James and his brothers. with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Acheldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection." And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Man shall not live, by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We ask us now that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth. We pray, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, who is the Word made flesh. And we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, who inspired the apostles to write your word. This week I googled the phrase King of America Just to see you know, what I might find King of America The top result By far right? It, it, it wasn't even close Was an album by Elvis Costello <laughs> Apparently he has an album entitled King of America, I didn't know that. So I had to work through, I had to to scroll down quite a bit to work past all of the Elvis Costello links, because there was more than one. And um, the first thing after all the Elvis Costello links were were a few links to articles and uh, biographies written about King George III of England. And one of the biographies is called The Last King of America. The third different link after that was a book by a man named uh, William Federer. I had never heard of him. Um, Apparently, he's done some work with Focus on the Family and other uh, ministry groups. And his book was about the uniqueness of America in the history of the world because America doesn't have a king. And that, uh, you know, for for all of world history, at least documented world history, every nation, no, no matter what title they've used, has had some kind of king or queen, some kind of dictator, some kind of ruler. And that's precisely the point, is that there is no king or queen of America. The United States of America does not have and has never had a monarchy. America was founded in rebellion to the king of England. And so it is ingrained in our national identity that we do not have a king. We proudly neither serve nor submit to any monarch. Our national identity is grounded in the words We, the people. Because the idea behind America is that we are, in fact, a democratic republic, that the people are the sovereign, that the people are the monarch, that the people are the king. And so we elect representatives to do our bidding. That's the idea, at least. The pursuit of individual happiness is part and parcel of what it means to be an American. We believe life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to be inherent intrinsic rights for all citizens. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We don't want a king. We don't need a king. And we're proud that we've never had a king that reality in part is why it is so difficult for us as Americans to understand a passage like Acts chapter 1 because the idea of a sovereign monarch, the idea of a king or a queen who is absolutely in charge and it doesn't matter what you think and it doesn't matter what you say or what you do or what you want every knee bends to the will of that person, that idea is so foreign to us. We've not done that for over 200 years. In our lifetimes, we've all been educated that that, an American value is that we are against that. And so it's difficult for us to understand a passage like Acts chapter one in a way that for most people in the world, for most, if not all, of the history of the world have understood. That just means we have to work extra hard to understand what the scripture says. There are many gaps between the ancient scripture and our contemporary context, right? The book of Acts was written in the first century. We live in 2023. There's a linguistic gap. The Book of Acts was written in Greek to a people who would have spoken Greek and Latin and um, Hebrew and Aramaic. We speak English predominantly, right? Maybe some of you speak some other languages, but if you can understand what I'm saying, at least you speak English, right? That's that's the framework we're working from. We just read the text in English, but it was written in greek so that's a gap right we have to do some extra work to understand what it's saying there is like i said a cultural gap we live in a modern western individualistic culture that is very different than second temple judaism in first century greco-roman culture those are two gaps that we have between us and the text that we need to try and overcome And a third gap, another gap, is that the original audience, the the group of people, the early church that would have read and heard Luke's book, the book of Acts, and again most people throughout world history would have a better understanding of kings and kingdoms than we do. Now we can understand it intellectually, right? We can read books, we can read articles, we can watch movies and listen to podcasts about what dynasties and kingdoms have looked like throughout the history of the world. But you know what? What we don't have, at least if you've been, or if you were born and raised in the United States of America, what you don't have, what it is impossible for you to have, is that that experience, that experiential knowing of what it's like to live under a king or under a queen who has absolute sovereign rule and authority. If you've been born and bred here like me, you have no idea. You can't know because we haven't. So we can intellectually understand, but just like Jonathan Edwards talks about the difference between knowing that honey is sweet and actually tasting the sweetness of the honey, we can understand kings and kingdoms, and dynasties and monarchs and sovereign rule, but we can't understand it the way that Luke's audience would have understood it. The way that people, even in the world now, who live under dictatorships, understand kings and kingdoms. We have never experienced that reality, and not only have we never experienced that reality, we actively hate that reality. Are against such things. It makes it difficult for us to understand Acts chapter 1, because Acts chapter 1 is all about the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ as God's king. And the book of Acts is all about the kingdom that has come through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. So there is a sense, as Americans, in which we are so adverse to kings and kingdoms because of our idea of justice or individual rights or whatever else, and there could and certainly is some truth in that, but there is a sense in which our disposition away from kings and kingdoms as Americans is wrong. We are wrong. It is actually really good news that Jesus of Nazareth is God's king. And it's really good news that the kingdom of God is alive and well. And Acts chapter 1 in the book of Acts is going to show us why. But before we move into actually expositing the text of Acts 1, we should know that this chapter that we read is made up of two organic pericopes. Um, So if you're unfamiliar, the word pericope is a transliteration of the Greek word perikope. It literally means like a cut or a cut of something. Think about like a cut of meat. It's like a portion to cut something off. So it's a cut of the text. It's a way to divide the text. And it's an organic way to divide the text. The word pericope refers to a coherent unit or thought of sacred scripture. So a pericope is a section of the text that the original author, Luke, and the original audience, they would have viewed as a complete thought or a complete story, a complete paragraph, or a complete unit of communication. So you might be sitting there thinking, well, don't we already have that? Like we have chapters and verses and books of the Bible? The thing is, our English Bibles divided into chapters and verses the when Luke wrote the book of Acts he did not divide it into chapters and verses. The chapters and verses are in fact arbitrary. They're made up. They're just a tool that we use to help us know where we are in the passage. Chapters were added to the Bible about 500 years after the New Testament was written. So for the first 500 years there was no chapters, there was no verses. It was just you had a copy of Acts. It was one unit, and no divisions. Verses were added to the Bible about 500 years ago. So, for about 1,500 years of church history, it was the Bible, or for about 1,000 years of church history, it was just divided into chapters. Since so they're arbitrary, right? it's just a way for us to study and learn. But when St. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and it was read, and it was understood. First of all, it's it's to be understood as a whole, right? He wrote one story. He didn't mean for us to break it all up and just study and read it, things on its own, without considering the full context of the book, right? He wrote one story, one book. But even then, we see here in verse one that the book of Acts is really the sequel to the book of Luke. The book of Acts is Luke, part two. He says, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And uh, if you read Luke chapter 1, verse 3, you see that he says the same thing as writing to Theophilus. More on that in a minute. Um, So we we understand Luke and Acts together, but even so, if you just take the book of Acts into account, with no chapters and no verses, Luke and his audience understood that there were section of the story. There were parts of the story that were um, making up the whole story. So you got the whole story, the whole book of Acts. There are still beginnings and ends to different stories within the story. They understood that. Those are called pericopes. When you're reading a text and you can tell, okay, this is a section. This is where a certain story or a certain idea begins and this is where it ends and now we're starting a new story or a new idea. So in Acts chapter 1, which is one chapter, again the chapters are arbitrary, we made them up, there are two pericopes. There are two organic sections of Acts chapter 1. Chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 is the first pericope, and Verses 12 through 26 is the second pericope. And what we do as we're reading the Bibles, we use the organic grammatical and literary clues that show us when each pericope begins and ends. So verses 1 through 11 are very clearly about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the organic clues in the narrative that define the pericope. In verse 2, he says he mentions the ascension until the day when he was taken up. And then in verse 11, the ascension is mentioned again when the angels say, you saw him go into heaven. So it begins talking about the ascension, it ends mentioning the ascension, and pretty much everything in between is about Jesus' ascension. We then get a well-defined literary transition in verse 12 because the location changes. Right? The apostles leave the Mount of Olives, and they return to Jerusalem. So it's a different location, different pericope, right? Next chapter, basically. And then, verses 12 through 26 are about how Matthias is replacing Judas as the 12th apostle. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, we see another clear change of scenery, where it says, now the day of Pentecost arrived. So there's a change in time. So you can, see, you can see the clues in the story about how the story's moving forward, right? Um, so in Acts 1, we have two pericopes, verses 1 through 11 and verses 12 through 16. For the purpose of our sermon, for the purpose of anybody who likes to write any kind of notes or to, to mark anything, I'm going to label the first pericope, the king's coronation, verses 1 through 11, the king's coronation. The second pericope, 12 through 26, we're going to label as the kingdom continues. Verses one through eleven, the king's coronation. Verses twelve through twenty-six, the kingdom continues. So the first pericope, the first section, don't really want to call them points because this is a story, right? This isn't like a didactic teaching necessarily. So our first scene or our first pericope, the king's coronation, begins in verses one through three, where Luke basically gives us a recap of his gospel, doesn't he? The first book that he wrote to Theophilus. Uh, again, if you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 3, you'll see that he wrote the Gospel of Luke to Theophilus. Now, scholars debate whether this Theophilus cat is a real person or whether it is simply a pseudoname for any Christian who reads Luke's books. That, that debate exists because the name Theophilus means lover of God. Uh, theos means God. Phileo means love. So Theophilus, lover of God. So is there, is there, was there a real guy named Theophilus, or is Luke just saying any lover of God who reads this book, I'm writing it to you? I don't know. Nobody knows for sure because none of us were there. It doesn't really matter either way. Um, the important thing to note here again is that the book of Acts is the sequel to the gospel of Luke. Gospel Acts is basically Luke part 2. And Luke says... That in the first book was about all that Jesus began to do and teach, meaning this second book is all about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. We call this book the Acts of the Apostles, but really it should be called the Acts and Deeds and Teaching of the Lord Jesus, part two, because that's what Luke is intending to say. We get confused sometimes because... In terms of being physically present, Jesus is only in the opening scene, right? He's he's here, he's teaching a little, then he ascends, and then it seems like it's just his apostles and the church doing what they do. But really what Luke is telling us is through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the one doing these things. Jesus is the main character of the book of Acts, even though he's physically and visibly only in the first scene. It's kind of like if you've ever seen the film... The Silence of the Lambs, right? If you've seen The Silence of the Lambs, Anthony Hopkins, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, is, he's only in the movie for like five minutes total. Have you ever noticed that? He is not in the film a lot, but the film is all about him, right? It's all, it's, he's the main character, but he's only in for like a couple minutes. Jesus is the main character in the book of Acts. And Jesus is active. The book of Acts is not about how Jesus leaves and everybody else does stuff Jesus wants them to do. The book of Acts is about how Jesus is doing these things now from heaven through his Holy Spirit. This, all that Jesus began to do and teach, specifically, Luke specifically mentions Jesus' suffering and how Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering. Another way to say that is his death and resurrection, right? This is the reason why Luke's book, the first one, is labeled as a gospel. Because the point of Luke, just like the point of Matthew and Mark and John, is to tell the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus. One commentator has noted that the gospels are basically uh, passion narratives with extended introductions, What that means is like, the main point of them is about the death and resurrection of Jesus and with long introductions about everything Jesus did and taught before his death and resurrection. This is good news. That's what the word gospel means. The word gospel means good news. This is good news uh, because we need good news. We need good news because of what we talked about earlier during the confession and pardon. We need good news. Every human being who has ever lived needs to hear good news because there is only one true God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this holy God created us, He created humans in His image, and we all sin. To sin means to fall short. God gave us His law, and we all break God's law. This is bad news because God is holy, and in His holiness, in His righteousness, in His justice, He cannot leave sin unpunished. He cannot leave sin unatoned for. God cannot let sin run rampant in His creation or else He would not be God. That's bad news because we are sinners, because we are guilty of sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. All people are guilty of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, book of Romans says. So we need good news. Do you understand that without any further good news, at this point in the sermon, at this point in our understanding, if this is all we have, then once again the bad news is that we all deserve eternal conscious punishment In hell. I deserve to suffer in hell forever because of my sin. That would be just. That would be the right thing. That's what I deserve. We have sinned against the one true and holy God, so we need good news. All we've got is bad news. But church, you know there's good news. That's why you're here. That's why you're here this morning. Thanks be to God, there is good news. The good news is that the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, became a human in his incarnation. The good news is that God didn't leave us to figure it out on our own, God Climb down in the mud with us. This is what we celebrate every Christmas, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus. We confessed it earlier as Pastor Bobby led us in the creed that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So that's already good news, like that God is like coming to us, he's not waiting for us to come to him, because if God was waiting for us to come to him, we would never go because we are dead in our sin. So God comes to us. That's the first part of the good news. And and this is where the news gets better. Jesus lives as a human, and living a full 30-plus years, he never sinned. He never broke God's law. He always obeyed God's law. Jesus never sinned in thought, word, or deed what we sang earlier, what we confessed earlier, church, of ourselves, Jesus would never have to confess that. He never broke God's law. He never fell short of God's glory in a single thought, in a single word, in a single deed. Jesus never sinned in what he did. Jesus never sinned in what he left undone. Jesus always loved God with his whole heart. Jesus always loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus always delighted in God's will. Jesus always walked in God's ways for the glory of God's name. Every second of every day for three plus decades, In doing so, what Jesus did is he earned our righteousness, the righteousness, the law-abiding, the sinlessness that we don't have, but we need to be right with God. Jesus did that by never sinning. Now Jesus earned it. What Adam lost, Jesus recaptured. So that when Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate and when Jesus died on the cross, the great exchange could happen. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus never sinned, but God made Jesus sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. That's the great exchange. That's the gospel. That's what we need. On the cross, Jesus took our sin. Jesus took your sin, that sin that you confessed earlier, the sin you confessed last week and the week before and the week before and the week before. Every time you failed in thought, word, or deed, every time you have not done the right thing or left the right thing undone, every time that you have not loved God with your whole heart, every time you have not loved your neighbor as yourself, every time you have not delighted in God's will and walked in his ways to the glory of his name, Jesus took all of that. And not just for you, for one other person. That would be unbearable enough. If I had to deal with my own sin and someone else's sin, Jesus didn't have any sin, and he took the sin of all of God's people. All of their guilt. All of their shame. our guilt, our shame. Jesus took that on himself, on the cross, and he suffered God's wrath, God's justice. The hell that we all deserve was put on Jesus while he hung and died on the cross. And Jesus did that so that everyone who believes can receive his righteousness. Jesus takes our sin. Jesus gives us his righteousness. And Jesus died. Jesus died and he was buried. He was so dead that they buried him. And he had to die. Why did Jesus have to die? He had to die because the penalty for sin had to be paid for. Yahweh told Adam, the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So for Jesus to genuinely pay the price, for Jesus to genuinely right the wrong, for Jesus to genuinely atone for sin, he could not just live righteously and he could not just suffer, he had to die. Non-negotiable. If he didn't die, sin would not be atoned for. So Jesus died. That moves us from Christmas right to Good Friday. Jesus of Nazareth died. The Son of God died. But church, death could not hold him. Death could not hold Jesus because Jesus was not a sinner. That's the only power death has over us, is our sin. That's why none of us can get back up, apart from the power of God. Why? Because God makes the rules. But Jesus did get back up. You know why? Because in the same way, That my five-year-old daughter cannot physically restrain me? Death cannot physically restrain Jesus. He is too strong because he is righteous. And so the Lord Jesus resurrected from the dead on the third day. That takes us to Easter. And this is where Acts chapter 1 picks up. But before we move forward in the narrative, it is important that we note that this good news demands a response. This isn't just something to hear. You must repent and believe in this good news. To repent means to confess that you are a sinner, and it means to turn from your sin. Repentance is only possible when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see that you are a sinner. But, church, if the Holy Spirit does open your eyes, you will repent. You must also place your faith in Christ. And if you have been with us here at Christ Community Church for any length of time, you have heard us teach that the Reformed tradition has long defined faith in terms of three facets, knowledge, assent, and trust. I was teaching uh, the elementary school kids this morning with Pastor Mike. He was teaching them and he taught them about knowledge, assent, and trust because that's what faith is. To have faith in Jesus means first to have the knowledge, to know who Jesus is and what Jesus did. That knowledge comprises everything that i just walked you through about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the person and work of Christ. But knowledge alone falls short of genuine faith because you must also assent to the validity of these truth claims about the person and work of Jesus. You must actually think that all of these things are true. Scripture says that the demons have knowledge and they have assent, but they do not have trust. In Christ James 2 19 trust is the final and key facet of faith to trust in Christ means to lay the full weight of your hope for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life on who Jesus is and what Jesus did to trust in Christ is like being a deer who comes to a stream with nothing to offer the water other than the reality that if the deer does not drink up the stream the deer will die You are the deer. Christ is the stream. To trust Christ means to understand that without Him, you die. To trust Christ means to bet your life on God's promise that if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Repent and believe the gospel. After recapping this good news in those few verses, Luke tells us that Jesus taught his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection, and he taught about the kingdom of God, and Jesus promised them that they will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. More on that next week when we look at Acts chapter 2. Then the disciples asked Jesus if at this point now, after he rose from the dead, if Jesus is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Uh, A lot of Christians have interpreted these verses pretty poorly. Uh, Some dispensational uh, theologians have wrongly interpreted that this verse teaches that there is a point in the future where national Israel will once again be the kingdom of God. That is not true. Uh, There are several reasons why we know it's not true, theologically and biblically. I'll give you two just from this immediate text. Number one, when they ask the question, Jesus does not answer their question by discussing Israel at all. But Jesus talks about the whole world. He says, you're going to go to the ends of the earth. Secondly, after the apostles are baptized in the Holy Spirit, next week, Acts chapter 2, they don't preach about Israel anymore. They preach about the nations. They preach about the church. So that's not what Jesus' question is about. And we see Jesus' response in verse 8, And verse 8 really is the thesis statement for the book of Acts. It's what the book of Acts is all about. So if you're someone who likes to write in your Bible, underline, highlight, bracket, whatever you do, Acts chapter 8 is what the book of Acts is all about. When you receive power, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's what the book of Acts is about. Um, The book of Acts starts next week, Acts 2, with them preaching in Jerusalem. By the end of the book, Paul is preaching the gospel in Rome. To them, Rome would have been the ends of the earth. This is what the book of Acts is all about. We will see every week, preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then Luke tells us that after Jesus said these things, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus then ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Pastor Andrew read Psalm 110 as he led us in the call to worship. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ here in Acts chapter 1 is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. This is where Yahweh said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand, because Jesus is the true and final son of David. Jesus is the king promised in the Davidic covenant. The ascension of Christ reveals to us that Jesus is The king and because Jesus is the king Jesus has the right to tell us what to do the Bible is Jesus word to us and we must submit to the king because Jesus is the king he is owed our ultimate allegiance more than our country more than our money more than our families more than our work More than anything or anyone else, Jesus deserves our ultimate allegiance because Jesus is the King. At this point, we look now at the second pericope of the chapter, verses 12 to 26. The kingdom continues. We note that Luke shifts the scene to, to Jerusalem as they're moving away from the mount called Olivet. You know what that means, church? That Jesus ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives. This is noteworthy because if you think about the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, there is some debate about what Jesus is referring to in the Olivet Discourse. Now, we're not going to do a deep dive this morning because we don't have time, and because we've already preached on the Olivet Discourse when we preached through Mark, so if you want to go check those sermons out, go to our website, go to our Facebook, look for the Mark Sermons. But in light of Acts 1, we should make mention of a couple things, uh, that... Uh, In in Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says this, Mark 13, 24-27, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Jesus said that in the Olivet Discourse. He was preaching on the Mount of Olives. Jesus in Mark 13 is quoting Daniel 7. Listen to what Daniel 7 says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. So Daniel 7 says that the Son of Man is coming through the clouds. I think a lot of, a lot of people interpret this and say that Jesus is coming back to earth through the clouds. That's not what it's saying. Daniel 7 says the Son of Man comes through the clouds to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is God. So he's going through the clouds to God, where he is given dominion and glory and an eternal kingdom that is comprised of peoples from all languages and nations. So Jesus, during the Olivet Discourse, is preaching from Daniel 7. He's standing on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. And he's saying, this is going to happen. Now, in Acts 1, Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives as he goes through the clouds up into heaven to the Ancient of Days. At that point, Jesus receives a kingdom comprised of all peoples and languages and nations. The book of Acts is the story of Jesus' messengers, Jesus' angels, it's the same word, gathering his elect from the ends of the earth. So to what degree is the Olivet Discourse about the second coming of Jesus? I'm not sure, maybe it's about both, but I know for sure, 100% it's about the ascension of Jesus. Luke then tells us that the 11 apostles that are left, along with Jesus' mother, his brothers, other women who have been following Jesus, they all gather themselves together in the upper room and they devote themselves to prayer. There's a sense in which this passage is descriptive, it is describing what happened, but this passage is also prescriptive. In response to Jesus' word, his people should devote themselves to prayer. Church may that be true of us also. May we be those who respond to the word in prayer. When we're gathered together on Sundays, or whether we're meeting in small groups, like Bible classes, or flocks, or other Bible studies, or we're with our families, or we're by ourselves, we must be devoted to prayer. Why? Because we are utterly dependent on God. And prayer is our acknowledgement that we are utterly dependent on God. Do you want to know God better? Have you ever thought that? I wish I could know God better. Feel like, like, understand it. Do you you want to feel closer to God? Do you want to battle your anxiety? Do you want to grow as a Christian? Pray. Pray. After they pray, then Peter stands up and he says, The scripture had to be fulfilled. The King James Version says, This scripture must needs have been fulfilled had to happen. God predestined before the world began that Judas would betray Christ. And Acts one twenty tells us that it was foretold in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Isn't it interesting to note that Judas' betrayal of Christ is shadowed in Psalm 109 and the ascension of Christ is shadowed in Psalm 110? These verses remind us of several theological and hermeneutical truths. Number one, Scripture is always true. Scripture is always true. If you disagree with Scripture, you're wrong, and Scripture's right. Scripture is always true. Number two, the sovereignty of God governs the responsibility of humans. Judas willfully betrayed Christ. He wasn't forced. He wanted to do it but it was predestined long before Judas was born. Number three, we once again see that all of scripture is Christ-centered. The entire Bible is telling the story of Jesus Christ. Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 are preparing us for the betrayal of Jesus hundreds of years before him. And so in light of Judas' betrayal, we are told in verses 21 through 26 that the apostles must find a replacement for Judas. There needs to be a 12th apostle who followed Jesus from the time of his baptism through his ascension in order to be a witness to Christ's resurrection. So they put forward two men, Matthias and Joseph. Joseph apparently had two nicknames, Barsabbas and Justice, and the apostles then pray again and they ask God to show them who the replacement should be, and then they cast lots. The lots providentially falls on Matthias, and so now Matthias is numbered among the apostles. There are once again twelve apostles. So the question is why? Why was it necessary that there be twelve apostles who had followed Jesus from his baptism through his ascension to be witnesses of his resurrection? What? Why couldn't there just be 11 apostles? Why couldn't they have made Matthias and Joseph both apostles? Why was it so important at this moment in redemptive history that there be 12 apostles? And the answer is that the church is the continuation of the kingdom of God. The church is... What Israel was. Just as there were 12 tribes of Israel, there had to be 12 apostles because the church is the fulfillment of Israel. The fact that there had to be 12 apostles reveals to us that the era, that the time in redemptive history of Israel, national Israel, being identified with the kingdom of God is over. Israel is not the kingdom of God. Israel never again will be the kingdom of God. The church now and forever is the kingdom of God. For all of human history, the kingdom of God has existed. God's people in God's place under God's blessing and rule. That is the kingdom of God. So Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were the kingdom of God. Noah and his family in the ark were the kingdom of God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, along with their families, sojourning around Canaan, they were the kingdom of God. And from Mount Sinai until the coming of Christ, Israel was the kingdom of God. Now the book of Acts reveals to us, through the 12 apostles, that the church is the true and final kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will never again be comprised exclusively of national Israel because the church made up of people from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation is the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. The church is not a completely new and different thing in the New Testament. It's not as if there's Israel in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament there's something completely different and new called the church. That is not the case. The church is the continuation of the kingdom. The kingdom that started with Adam in the garden has continued through all of redemptive history and is now the church. The church is the continuation of God's kingdom. Jesus is the king and the church is his kingdom. America is not the kingdom of God. Israel is not the kingdom of God. America is not the people of God. Israel is not the people of God. God's kingdom is not exclusively in the past. God's kingdom is not exclusively in the future. Church, we are the kingdom of God. Jesus is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father, where he has been for 2,000 years. Jesus will not be king in the future. Jesus has been the king for 2,000 years. And so it turns out the United States of America does have a king, and it's not George III, and it's not Elvis Costello. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and he is the king of the entire universe. More importantly, he is the king of God's kingdom, the church. Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and because Jesus is king, we must submit to his word. Because Jesus is king, we can trust God's promises. Because Jesus is king, the church is the kingdom of God. And because Jesus is king, our allegiance, first and foremost, is to a king and a kingdom. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask now that you would keep your promise and that your word would not return for you. Father, we pray for anyone who is in the gathering this morning who is not trusting in Jesus, that you would crush their heart, that you would bring them to rock bottom, so that they can see that Jesus is better. Father, we ask you would make our hearts believe. Father, we pray for your people as we come to the Eucharist now, that we would confess our sin, that our hearts would be full of joy, and that we would understand that as we gather together as a church every Sunday at the Lord's Supper, that this is not merely a religious ritual, but this is a royal banquet. The king of creation and the king of the church is seated at your right hand, and he is communing with us as we eat the bread and as we drink the wine. Father, we pray that you would give us the understanding desire and the ability to respond humbly and obediently to your word. May we acknowledge the kingship of the Lord Jesus. May we submit to the kingship of the Lord Jesus. May we understand that we are the kingdom of God. Your kingdom has come and your will has been done, Father. Your kingdom is here. We know that it's not fully here, that it's that Jesus is going to return to raise the dead and judge the world and make all things new. And your kingdom will be consummated Amen. at that point. But Father, your kingdom has started. It has been inaugurated. Father, give us understanding. Give us humility. Make our hearts believe. We pray these things in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Church, you can rise now. And as you prepare to come to the elements, let me say something real quick. Pastor Mike will you- give.